0: two thousand six, November twenty eighth. Today is lecture forty three, Icy Worlds of the Outer Solar System, which will begin in just a moment. All right. Well, we're, we're trying to finish up sort of the last bits of the solar system, and conspicuously missing from the last few lectures was any mention of Pluto. Well, here comes Pluto today. Well, that's not Pluto, that's Triton. We're going to talk about the icy worlds of the outer solar system. There's this place in the solar system, the solar nebula, when when the sun and the planetary system was forming, we called the frost line. Inside the frost line, it was too close to the sun, it was too warm for ices and carbonaceous compounds to form. It's the land of rock and rock, and a few bits of metal and iron and stuff like that. That's where we find the interterrestrial planets and the asteroids. From the frost line outwards is the land of ice. Water ice, methane ice further out once you get past Neptune, and in between lots and lots of carbonaceous material, which is very abundant. That's where we find the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. As we move further out from Jupiter and Saturn, we get into the really icy worlds. Uranus and Neptune are mostly ices and stuff. They're not mostly hydrogen, unlike the case for Jupiter and Saturn. Once you get past Neptune... You reach the place where methane, which is normally a gas in most of the solar system, suddenly becomes an ice, even in vacuum-type temperatures. And you start getting into the really icy worlds of the very outer solar system. And this is why people have seen a tremendous change over the last few years in our perception of what's going on in the outer solar system, because it's been so hard to observe anything out there because it's all so far away. So a lot of the lecture I'm giving today is, is much case of wor- in many cases a work in progress. A lot of work in the last decade has been done to really begin our exploration of the icy worlds of the outer solar system. So the key ideas today are to introduce to you the largest of the icy worlds of the outer solar system and then the general class of objects associated with this place. We'll start by Triton. This is the giant moon of Neptune that we just passed over quickly a couple weeks ago. We're going to come back to it now because actually now we can put Triton in context. Triton is the wrong thing in the wrong place. Well now we can put it in a context, it's actually a very large example of a captured object from these icy worlds of the outer solar system. It's got a very, very cold surface, and it's one of these places with cryovolcanism, with nitrogen volcanoes. And then it's time to introduce Pluto and Eris. Pluto and Eris were at one time the ninth and the and the candidate tenth planet, but we now know them to be the largest of the outer icy dwarf planets. They're very much like Triton in their properties. Now we don't know if it's got cryovolcanism. We've not not gotten a close look. Probably not, because Triton, as we're going to see, has cryovolcanism because of tides, whereas you're not going to get the big tides on either Pluto or Eris. Its moons are moon of Pluto is big, but not that big. So we'll review the properties of Pluto and Eris. And we're going to see that Pluto and Eris are simply the largest examples of a much, much bigger class of objects called generically the transneptunian objects. As the name implies, these are objects that orbit beyond the orbit of Neptune. They live Um, in a couple of different regions, which are distinguished by the dynamics of their orbits. So just like yesterday with the asteroids, we saw how orbital resonances with Jupiter sculpted the main belt of asteroids, so too we're going to see this resonance sculpting going on in the outer solar system, but now it's going to be Neptune, the outermost of the Jovians, doing the sculpting, not Jupiter. We're going to see the Kuiper belt objects, the so-called Plutinos, which are... To three to two resonant objects with Neptune, and actually gives you a clue its name. Pluto is also in a three to two resonance with Neptune. And we're going to see a class of objects known as the scattered disk objects. In fact, more generically, Plutinos are going to be seen to be the most populous of a whole class of objects we'll often refer to as resonant objects. These have only been recently recognized, and your book doesn't say a thing about them. So today we're going to visit the outer reaches of the solar system, places where we've just been learning some brand new things to the coldest, iciest worlds in our solar system. Well, one of the surprises coming by Neptune, when the Voyager spacecraft flew by Neptune in 1989, was the appearance of the giant moon Triton. Now some of this had been expected that Triton was going to be a bit of an oddball. First of all, it was really big and outer moons of the, the moons of the outer planets generally tend to be pretty small, but Triton stood out. It's 2,700 kilometers in diameter. That's 21% the size of the Earth. That's big. That's way bigger than our moon. In fact, it's like the fourth or fifth largest moon in the entire solar system. Its density, as determined by its mass from the passage, is about 2 grams per cc. This tells us that we've got one of these objects that's mostly an icy mantle over a rocky core. But what was really what was known before, suspected before, but really known in detail when we got the close flyby in this beautiful mosaic over here of Triton, is that it has an extremely cold, icy surface. So far, of those surfaces for which we have an actual bona fide temperature, Triton is one of the coldest places in the solar system. The temperature is only thirty four degrees Celsius above absolute zero. It's thirty four Kelvin on the surface. That's three hundred and ninety eight degrees Fahrenheit below zero. At those temperatures, nitrogen, methane, carbon dioxide, water, and even carbon monoxide freeze as ices. So this is an exceedingly cold place made mostly of ices. But nitrogen now plays an interesting role. Nitrogen can actually transition between a gas and a solid. It sublimates. And so you actually get a very, very thin nitrogen atmosphere. This had been suspected by observations from the ground, watching stars disappear behind Triton as Triton passes in front of them. And it was noticed the star did not simply blink out when it hit the limb, but it kind of flickered a bit and then went out, suggesting that you were passing through some high atmosphere layers. But it's an exceedingly thin, thin atmosphere. But the big surprise when the Voyager spacecraft went flying by Neptune was how young the surface of Triton was. If you look at this picture, this beautiful mosaic here, a bit more than half the surface of the planet was in sunlight during the very rapid flyby. there aren't any impact craters, or if there are, there's only a very few. A large icy body of the outer solar system should have just been a meteor magnet. This thing should have been just pounded through the epoch of heavy bombardment, and yet it's got an extremely young surface. In fact, if we take some close-ups, what you see are very very large walled plains although now instead of being lava like the maria of the moon these are ice plains this is actually ices that have flowed out in a smooth surface you can see one impact crater sitting there but in this huge area there are no impact craters this is not maybe perhaps this is a filled in old impact crater but the walls here suggest in fact it's not this is actually new terrain and then you get weird stuff like this terrain here which is called cantaloupe terrain because well It looks like a close up of cantaloupe. These are not impact craters. This, in fact, looks like freezing in a liquid surface, kind of, if you look, if you watch sea ice freeze. You get these funny shapes like ice rafts and things like that. You get little hummocks of ice as the various pressure waves run through it. And so one of the thoughts, in fact, is this surface was largely very, very molten, actually in this case, semi-liquid ices, and then froze. And what we're seeing is very, very young surfaces. But there's virtually no impact craters anywhere on this surface. When you see no impact craters on a large object of the outer solar system, that's telling you immediately it's a very geologically young surface. But what's the process by which this geologic youth has has occurred? It has to have some heat in the interior in order to melt the interior because it's a small object. Small objects cool off really fast. This thing should have been literally frozen solid, yet very clearly it's got some liquid stuff going on underneath. Well, pretty clear that the paving, the repaving of the surface with ices is a sign of vast amounts of cryovolcanism. And we saw cryovolcanism before. We saw it on Enceladus where we had very, very young terrains which were being fed by water geysers, which were primarily being provided by heating of the interior of Enceladus because it was in a two-to-one resonance with the moon Dione around Saturn. In the case of Triton, Triton is the biggest moon anywhere around Neptune. The tides are going to come actually from tides off Neptune itself. The interior is heated by tides. It's probably semi-liquid from this extra heating. The material oozes through cracks in the surface. So don't think about, you know, the classic cone volcano with stuff and smoke billowing out. We're not talking about molten rock. We're talking about ice oozes. The ice will sort of ooze up from the cracks, flow out in the surface, and fill in the surface and repave it. And there's a lot of signs of those kinds of flows going on in the surface. You can see cracks and fissures in the surface. You can see where things have basically oozed out and filled in the the surfaces. But the other thing that was rather surprising was a sign that there's still some internal heat in the planet where these bright streaks, I'm sorry, dark streaks along an otherwise bright ice plane. You can see a number of them laid out here. I'm pointing them out here across there. They all seem to point in the same general direction. Here's a couple now across some darker terrain. Again, sort of a point of of plumes coming off. A couple of these were actually seen from the side during the spacecraft passes. They're actually geysers of nitrogen gas. They come pluming up out of the interior. They bring up some dust and junk and carbonaceous material from the deep interior, blast it up, and then that thin nitrogen atmosphere has slow winds, picks it up, and kind of blows it downwind a bit. So you sweep it out, marking out... the downwind position. So you can actually see, by the way all these dark plumes have painted themselves across the fresh ices on the surface, you can actually tell the general direction of the general wind flow on the very thin thin nitrogen atmosphere of Triton. But the other problem is, why is Triton's surface so much younger? I mean, you can get some tidal heating and that probably can keep it hot, but why is it so weird? Why is the surface so odd? Well, there's one little fact about Triton I haven't told you about yet, Oops, feeds the thin nitrogen atmosphere. And that is, Triton is in a circular orbit retrograde around Neptune. Now, this was a big surprise. It was known for a long time, of course, once Triton was discovered. But, you know, every other giant moon throughout the solar system, the giant moons around Jupiter, the giant moons around uh, Saturn, and even the not-so-giant moons around Uranus, the big spherical ones, all orbit in the same sense that the planet rotates. They lie in the equatorial plane. They all rotate in the same way. They all know something about the original circulation of material out of which that planet formed. But Triton is orbiting exactly backwards. That doesn't make any sense at all from a point of view of Triton being born in that orbit. You can't do that. It's extremely difficult to do. So what people have proposed is, in fact, this is a sign that Triton is a captured object that got into a circular orbit, a backwards retrograde circular orbit around Neptune by way of a collision. The idea is as follows. Triton was probably originally an object orbiting the sun. It's what we would call today, in 2006, a dwarf planet. But it passed very, very close to Neptune, and on one of those passages, it collided with a fairly large moon that was already orbiting around Neptune. That collision essentially stopped the object, the proto-Triton cold, and got it captured into a retrograde eccentric orbit. Now the eccentric elliptical orbit, of course in the presence of a strong tidal field, with the presence of ices which can be melted, is slowly going to dissipate energy and you're going to settle into a circular orbit over time. Now these tides from Neptune, and as well as the the immense heat from this collision, probably completely melted Triton. Now if this had occurred, for example, sort of towards the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment, you would have erased most of that heavy bombardment history. So that's one part of what may make the surface young. But the residual heat of formation is going to last a long time. You've really heated this sucker up. And so it's eased it into its present circular orbit with a lot of heat in the interior, and that's why Triton has its unusual properties. It's an unusually warm object far away in terms of interior heat, and it's orbiting backwards. This is another example we've seen over and over again through the solar system in which collisions, however improbable they may seem to us today, actually played an important role in putting the solar system together. We don't have a lot of collisions in the present day solar system. That's a good thing, right? One big collision about 65 million years ago wiped out the dinosaurs and reset the whole ecosystem of the planet. We don't want those things to happen. Go back three, three and a half, four billion years, collisions are one of the dominant pieces determining how objects in the solar system form and evolve. After that that collision history tailed off, we kind of see the remnants of it today. So we've seen a number of of forces, if you will, in the solar system. It's kind of a misuse of a word, but we've seen influences. Collisions, sculpting surfaces, delivering things. A collision probably gave rise to the creation of the moon. Explains a lot of its unusual properties. Collisions can probably explain the unusually large iron core of Mercury. It may be able to be a good way to explain the unusual backwards orbit of Triton. Now, this sounds too much like I'm invoking collisions for every weird problem I run into. But it isn't just simply a, oh, I know, we don't know what's going on, let's call it a collision. We actually have reasons for believing why collisions should work. We know they were frequent in the past. And... Even though we, we can't go back in time and watch the collision happen, we can show that there is a consistent, coherent picture we can put together for how a collision can lead to the present system. Whereas otherwise, we simply don't have an explanation. So it isn't you know it, it does sort of seem sometimes when you read the literature. I even feel this way when I, re, when I read the literature that's a catch-all solution. But in fact, collisions are very important. All right, on we go. Pluto. Time to finally mention Pluto. Poor Pluto has been beat up this year. Pluto was discovered in 1930 by Clyde Tombaugh. He was a Missouri amateur astronomer who was hired by the Lowell Observatory to join in a search for what was being referred to colloquially at the time as Planet X. X for unknown, not X for Roman numeral 10. This was a hypothesized to be a large planet that was orbiting out beyond the orbit of Neptune and whose gravity was actually causing Neptune's orbit to deviate a bit from its normal course. We're going to say a little bit more about this on Thursday when we talk about what it really means to be a planet and whether Pluto is a planet or not. But with all that history report put aside, this Pluto, upon its discovery in 1930, was immediately declared to be the ninth planet in the solar system. It orbited out at about 39 and a half astronomical units. It takes about 367 years to complete one orbit. So it's a real slow moving, small planet. It also has a very, very tilted orbit. It's tilted by 17 degrees with respect to the ecliptic, which really makes it stand out. The largest tilt of, of an orbit relative to the ecliptic is 7 degrees for Mercury. And it's extremely elliptical, 0.249. This is way bigger than the eccentricity, the ellipticity of the orbit of Mercury, which is the biggest one, that's like 0.09. So this is a huge eccentricity. have a picture here of Clyde Tombaugh at the device that was used to, this is called a blink comparator, that was used to discover Pluto. You take photographic plates on two night, different nights, and you put them in this device that lines them up, and then you switch blinking back and forth from one plate to the other, all the fixed stars will stay pretty much the same and any moving objects will appear to blink back and forth as you blink back and forth. The techniques for discovering objects like Pluto today use digital cameras rather than photographic plate cameras, but the basic software principle we use is no different than the blink comparator of Clyde Tombaugh in 1930. We look for objects that are slowly moving with respect to the background stars. Pluto is a very, very frozen world. It's the ice world. Its diameter is about 2,300 kilometers, about 19% the size of the Earth. Notice that this is smaller than Triton. Its de- mass is about uh, 21000 ths the mass of the Earth, and its density is about 2 grams per cc, which is telling us that what we've got is one of these rocky cores surrounded by a very, very deep ice mantle. Again, very similar to what we see for the structure of Triton. Now, the picture I've drawn here is simply a cartoon of an icy body with modeling. It's got a very smooth surface. That's about the clearest picture we have ever gotten of the surface of Pluto. We do not have pictures of any detail of the surface of Pluto yet. We do know, however, that Pluto does have and maintain an atmosphere. It's extremely cold there. Temperature sort of day-side to night-side varies between 35 and 45 degrees Kelvin. That's 378 to 396 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. As a consequence, even though it's a really tiny moon, I mean it's got twenty one ten thousand at the mass of the Earth, you know, the Moon is a lot, whole lot bigger than, than Pluto, but it doesn't have an atmosphere at all. But that's because it's one astronomical unit from the sun. You put this thing out in round numbers, forty astronomical units from the sun, it's receiving one 1,600th the sunlight that the Earth receives. It's cold and this low temperature despite the low gravity is enough to hold on to a nitrogen atmosphere now it's too cold for methane so methane is just going to basically freeze out and we expect some of the nitrogen freezes out as well And so what we see on the surface we look at reflectance spectroscopy remember a spectrum will tell you what molecules and atoms are present what we look at on the case of Pluto is you watch sunlight being reflected off of Pluto's surface We know what the spectrum of the sun looks like just all by itself, so you subtract off that part of the spectrum of Pluto's reflected light that's due to the sun, and what you find are very, very broad bands of things like nitrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, and water. So it's all the volatile ice as we expect in the outer solar system. And observations of stars disappearing behind the planet does show a little bit of flicker as the planet blocks the star, suggesting that it, like Triton, has a thin nitrogen atmosphere. And so the expectation is that it's it's going to be very similar to Triton in its properties. Maybe not as young a surface because there isn't as much tidal heating, but it could have a lot of properties. It certainly has a nitrogen atmosphere. It's able to be big enough just to hang on to it because it's so cold, despite its size. Pluto has three moons. The largest of these moons is the moon Charon. To give you an idea of the proportions of these moons, this is a Hubble Space Telescope picture. Again, even with Hubble, Pluto is so far away it's blurred out. We really can't see any surface details at all. Here's Pluto and Charon. This is not a, oh, I've just drawn these together. This is their actual proportions and their actual distance from each other. Pluto, Charon orbits only 19, a little over 19,000 kilometers from Pluto and takes only about 6.3 days to go around. Its diameter is big. It's 1,200 kilometers. So it's a spherical object as well. The interesting thing, though, is that Not only is the orbital period 6.3872 days, we do know it to that kind of precision, but the rotation period of both Charon and Pluto are locked together with each other, so Pluto rotates 6.3 days. All by itself, something like this should be rotating about once every 12, 10, 15 hours but it's been actually slowed down by tides. So now Pluto and Charon are literally orbiting around their common center of mass, and they're facing each other the whole time. It's an example of a very, very strong one-to-one tidal resonance that has locked both of their rotations together. So it's a one-to-one tidal spin-spin orbit resonance. It's a very unusual triple resonance. Pluto's locked, Charon's locked in terms of rotation, and they both tie down to their mutual orbit. Pluto and Charon are so big relative to each other that the center of mass of the system is about right here. It's actually outside the body of Pluto. So some people actually have suggested that Pluto and Charon together make kind of a binary dwarf planet, a kind of a double planet or a double dwarf planet. Very strange little place. Very, very strange place. It's different from anywhere else we've seen in the solar system so far. Let me just give you a sense of scale. When Pluto was first discovered, its size was mismeasured. People thought it was actually bigger than the Earth. And so that's why people said, oh, yeah, of course, that's a planet. Well, this is part of, sort of as a preview for what's coming up Thursday, of why Pluto has kind of been, why are we calling that a planet? Here's Pluto and Charon. Even if you've set them side by side, you still have room for California and parts of Nevada to peek out when you superimpose them on a map of the United States Pluto and Charon are really small They're a whole lot smaller than we thought they were Because it's really hard to measure things in the outer solar system So that's part of what the mystery of Pluto was It just—it was this planet, it was called the ninth planet It's called the ninth planet primarily because it was all by itself in the outer solar system There was nothing else like it out there So we could invent an entirely new category for Pluto Plutoid, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Or we can say, look, it looks kind of big, it's in orbiting the sun, eh, it's a planet. And until you find something else out there with it, it doesn't really make much sense to give it its own brand new category. That, of course, has begun to change in recent years. Now, got a little ahead of myself there. There's two other moons of Pluto that have recently been discovered only in the last year using the Hubble Space Telescope. They're really, really tiny and they're really faint and they're hard to see. But the beautiful advanced camera for surveys, this is Pluto and Charon now, but the streaks you see coming off here are artifacts from the telescope. They just burn those suckers in. What they were looking for originally were either faint moons or even rings around Pluto. Now why you would expect rings around Pluto is hard to say, but some people had some ideas there were. But instead what showed up were these two little objects, which as you watched it from night to night, orbit. They're given the names Nyx and Hydra, they have orbits fairly far out. Nix is about 49,000 kilometers out. Hydra is about 65,000 kilometers out. They're tiny. The estimated size, and these are only estimates at this point, is so that Nix is only about 40 kilometers across, and Hydra is only about 160 kilometers across. These are probably little captured tiny ice balls, little, little suckers, but they're obviously orbiting in the plane of the Pluto Charon double system. So Pluto has three moons now. So whatever the, whatever the nature of Pluto, planet, dwarf planet, or whatever, it does have enough gravity to at least have scooped up a couple of moons It has a fairly, fairly sizable moon system. These are all, this is all brand new. This is really kind of cool. It's not really often that you discover brand new moons of outer planets as often. It can still be done, but to find major moons of Pluto is really quite exciting. Now this whole question of whether Pluto was a planet or not really got kicked into high gear last summer, summer of 2005, when a trio of astronomers at Caltech, Gemini Observatory, and Yale announced the discovery of an object beyond the orbit of Neptune that was actually bigger than Pluto. It's currently named Eris. It was a E-R-I-S. It's the... um, named for the goddess of discord. We'll say a little bit more about that on Thursday. It's actually bigger than Pluto. It's 2,400 kilometers in diameter. Its semi-major axis is huge. It's way out there, 67.7 astronomical units from the sun. In fact, it was discovered when it was 98 astronomical units from the sun, which tells you this object's really, really shiny. It's got very, very fresh ices on it. An orbit with that kind of semi-major axis, Kepler's third law tells us takes 560 years to circle the sun once. This thing is way the heck out there. Its orbit is also very elliptical and very tilted. The eccentricity is 0.44, one of the biggest eccentricities for anything that we even thought of calling a planet at some point, and it's tilted by 45 degrees with respect to the plane of the ecliptic. It's way out of there. Spectrum of this thing in reflected sunlight shows that it's got a very Pluto-like composition, frozen methane, frozen water, nitrogen, a lot of methane on the surface, and it even has a small moon. This is a picture taken with the giant Keck telescope in Mauna Kea using adaptive optics techniques. And there you can see this very, very tiny moon here next to the larger body of the, of the object Eris, this putative dwarf planet. It's since been given a name this summer. It's been named Dysnomia, which was one of the daughters of Eris. Uh, dysnomia means lawlessness. Here's a, a cartoon picture of that by um, a man named Lomb- uh, Timothy Lomb- Thierry Lombry, It's one of these space artists here. The shininess of this surface, of course, all this is very speculative. Eris actually has the second shiniest surface of any object in the solar system after Enceladus. It's probably got a surface of very much fresh ices. We wouldn't have been able to see it otherwise. If it had a dark surface, it would have been very difficult to detect 98 astronomical units out. And you've done the homework problem on that. That's why I gave it to you. Sunlight, in round numbers, is one ten-thousandth the sunlight on Earth. And remember, to see this thing, the sunlight's got to go out to Eris, where it's diluted by a factor of ten thousand from one over distance squared, and then it's got to bounce back to Earth, another 98 astronomical units back. So the brightness of a planet fades, in reflected light, fades like one over distance to the fourth power, because it's a distance squared out times distance squared back when they're very far away. So this sucker would be too faint to see if it really was as dark as everything else in the solar system. We got lucky that A, it's big, and B, it's unusually shiny. Well, Pluto and Eris are now recognized as really the largest members of what has been come to be recognized over the last 15 or so years as a brand new class of distant icy worlds that dominate the population of objects in the space beyond Neptune. They're found only in the outer solar system where they have moons so we can measure their their masses, which actually a lot of these objects out there actually come in pairs. Um, Allow us to measure their masses from orbits. We get densities between 1.2 and two grams per cc. That immediately tells us, combined with the reflection spectroscopy of the brighter ones, that they're composed mostly of ices, maybe with a small rocky ice core. So these things are going to be, the larger ones will be differentiated. The rock will have sunk to the center and the ices will have floated and accumulated onto the surface. They're all extremely cold and a lot of the reflectance spectroscopy shows that they're covered with nitrogen and methane ices. So we're so far out in the solar system now that nitrogen, which is what 70 odd percent of what we breathe in this room, is actually frozen into an ice on the surface of these objects. We call these objects generically by the most imaginative possible name, the trans-Neptunian objects. It's not a great name, it's kind of hard to spell, but it's very, very descriptive. These are objects that orbit beyond the orbit of Neptune, hence trans-Neptunian. There is also a small class of objects that orbit inside the orbit of Neptune. They're referred to as cis-Neptunian, which is kind of weird. Basically, they range... In orbits from 30 astronomical units outwards, 30 astronomical units in round numbers is the orbit of Neptune. So this is a picture from November 20th. Actually, this is a picture from November um, 26th. I'm going to put this lecture together here. This is showing the orbit of Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, and then they've omitted the inner solar system here because it would just crowd together. You can see the uh, Jupiter Trojans here. Jupiter is located here. Neptune is right here right now, and you can see this large band of objects here. There's this gap here. I should point out this gap here is an artifact. The reason is all these objects are terribly, terribly faint. This direction is where the plane of the Milky Way crosses the ecliptic. The plane of the ecliptic and the plane of the Milky Way galaxy cross each other at two locations, here and up here, where there's a sparsity of objects, but a real sparsity of objects here. There's so many stars in that direction, you confuse stars with slow-moving trans-Neptunian objects, you don't even bother to look. (laughs) When you can look deep enough to see the faint TNOs, you're going to confuse it with stars, you'll never see it. So this gap here is simply an artifact of how you search for these things. You have to take deep, deep electronic images. The various of these trans-Neptunian objects are divided into a number of subclasses based on their orbits. The first of these, for years, people searched for trans-Neptunian objects. Ever since Pluto was discovered in 1930, even Clyde Tombaugh, in his subsequent years, searched for more trans-Neptunian objects when it was realized that Pluto was too small to have caused the claimed residual wobble in Neptune's orbit. They didn't find any. The first trans-Neptunian object was not discovered until 1992, and it was because of the advent of very, very sensitive digital cameras, basically based on the CCD sensor, It was done by a a pair of astronomers, David Jewett and Jane Liu at the University of Hawaii, and the development of computer image processing techniques that allowed you to basically do the blink comparator trick with very faint, very slow-moving objects. Once people figured out the trick, all of a sudden we went from nothing from 1930 to 1992. One in 1992, we now know nearly a thousand of these things by 2006. In fact, some of the projects I'm starting to get involved with myself for the Large Binocular Telescope coming up in the next year are to try to punch down in certain areas of the sky to see how faint can we really find trans-Neptunian objects way, way out in the solar system. These dynamical classes that they fall into are a sign that there's been some dynamical sculpting going on. We're getting enough that we can actually see them, not just simply, oh, yeah, there's another object beyond Neptune, but it follows certain orbital patterns that appear. The Kuiper Belt, which is the main body of what you see here, objects called Plutinos or Little Plutos, whose name is suggestive of what their orbit is, and objects called the Scattered Disk Objects. They're all distinguished by the different types of orbits they possess. This is currently sort of a rogue's gallery of the largest known trans-Neptunian objects. The two largest transneptunian objects are Eris and Pluto. Eris being a bit larger than Pluto by a few hundred kilometers, and then the rest have either preliminary designations like 2005 FY9 and 2003 EL61. 2003 EL61 actually has two moons and is kind of elongated, kind of like a kind of like a rugby ball. Then there's some outer plausibly spherical objects that have already been named Sedna, Orcus, Qua, and Varuna. We're running out of Greeks, goddesses, gods and goddesses real fast. They're starting to dip now into names from various mythologies. Kwa'a is a, um, an underworld god from the original Native American peoples that inhabited the Los Angeles basin. That's how far we're reaching for names for the outer solar system. Um, you know, Sedna's, uh, Pacific Northwest and Varuna. Oh gosh, I forget who Varuna was. Anyway, those are the biggest ones so far. If you trace out their orbits, you immediately notice a pattern begins to appear. First of all, just like we saw with the asteroid belt, there appears to be a belt of these trans-Neptunian objects. Just outside the orbit of Neptune, there's Jupiter's orbit, and they form mostly circular orbits or slightly elliptical orbits around this region here. That's going to form what we refer to as the Kuiper belt. But there's a large number of these objects that have very, very elliptical orbits. Look at the scale here. This goes out to 200 astronomical units on either side. So these objects have clearly been, have orbits that the inner parts of the orbits all land inside or pass very close to Neptune. But the outer parts of the orbits, because they're elliptical, spend most of their time out here in this sort of, other part of this trans-Neptunian space. This region here is between about 30 and 50 astronomical units, that's the main body of the Kuiper Belt, and these objects that look like someone had taken an object that's normally just sort of rolling around in the Kuiper Belt and scattered it out are referred to as the scattered disk. They all still lie reasonably close to the plane of the ecliptic, some of them can get as high as 40 odd degrees, but they do lie in what's referred to as the scattered disk. So we'll look at that main group first, the Kuiper Belt objects. Most, in fact, of the Ki- objects we know in the, in the trans Neptunian space are, in fact, in that place called the Kuiper Belt. It lies between about 30 to 50 astronomical units. It's puffy. It's, it's got some thickness, uh, inclinations up to around 30 degrees or so. So just like the main belt of the asteroid belt, it's actually, a, it's got orbits of all various inclinations and eccentricities. But they all spend most of their time between 30 and 50 astronomical units. Also like the main belt, the inner and outer edges of the Kuiper belt are bounded by resonances. In this case, the inner edge is the 3-to-2 resonance with Neptune and the outer edge is the 2-to-1 resonance. So at the outer edge of the 2-to-1 resonance, the orbits, the objects are trans-Neptunian, so they are beyond Neptune, they orbit slower. So objects at the 2 to 1 resonance complete one orbit in the time it takes Neptune to go around twice. Closer to the sun, faster orbit. The 3 to 2 resonance means that the objects complete two orbits in the time it takes Neptune to complete three. The way to read resonance numbers is inside body, outside body. So if you see 2 to 1 resonance, Talking about Neptune, two to two refers to the inside body. One refers to the outside body. In the case of the asteroid belt, Jupiter is the outside body. So to be asteroid Jupiter, trans-Neptunian, Neptune, trans-Neptunian object. Now the scattered Kuiper Belt objects do in fact pass close to Neptune, but they have really big ellipticities, so they spend most of their time beyond 50 astronomical units. As I said before, the first of these was discovered in 1992. It took us a long time because they're really super faint. They're way out there. By now we know nearly a thousand of these things, so the pace of discovery is picked up. You can use the pattern of sizes and know that we haven't looked at the entire space, between 30 and 50 AUs, so we can estimate from that fraction of the space we've surveyed how many objects should be out there. Current estimates are that there should be about 70,000 of these things with sizes in excess of 100 kilometers across. The largest that we know of, I've just shown you a picture of a few of those, are bigger than 1,000 kilometers across. There's maybe about six or eight of these known now. But if you add up all the mass, you end up with about 3% the mass of the Earth. Interesting number. Remember yesterday we saw if you added up all the asteroids you only got six ten-thousandths the mass of the Earth. There's a lot of mass out here. In fact, this is starting to get up to a significant fraction of the mass of the Earth is contained in these ice balls. That's because ices are much more abundant than rock and there's much more space is involved. It's a bigger volume of space, so there's much more material. This is made up of the leftover icy planetesimals from the formation of the solar system, analogous to how in the asteroid belt we're seeing a lot of the leftover rocky planetesimals inside the frost line. So the Kuiper Belt and the Transeptunian objects in general are important to us because they're the residual population of icy construction debris left over from the formation of the solar system. That's why we're so interested in this. Otherwise, it would just be a botany exercise. How many KBOs can you find in this observing run? It's actually really important to understand them. Now, the other part that turns out to be extremely interesting and has told us a great deal about the he- past of the solar system is that the Kuiper Belt objects, or the various trans-Neptunian objects, but those associated primarily with the Kuiper Belt, fall into these distinct dynamical classes. The first of these are the classical Kuiper Belt. Now, before I do this, I'm going to back up just a bit. I've got two plots here that are taken from a scientific paper. We're, you guys have come along far enough now. We're going to start showing you some of the hardcore stuff. This is the semi-major axis is plotted along the x-axis. And I've plotted two other orbital parameters along the y-axis. The inclination or the tilt of the orbit. So zero is in the plane of the ecliptic, and 10 degrees up to 40 degrees is tilted out of the plane of the ecliptic. So that's the orbital tilt or inclination. The other plots the same semi-major axis, but now plots the eccentricity. Where zero is a circular orbit, 0.25 here is about like Pluto. In fact, Pluto's right there. Um, point 0.8 is extremely elliptical that's a long thin ellipse now by plotting it this way you can actually see family relationships among the various bodies much in the same way that yesterday we plotted that histogram of where things land in semi-major axis we saw the belts and the gaps it's a little bit more subtle in the outer solar system because we've only got a thousand objects instead of 50,000 in the case of the asteroid belt the main body of these objects lies in the place called the classical Kuiper Belt. These vertical dashed lines I plotted in both cases are the 3 to 2 and 2 to 1 resonances. So there you can see how those resonances with Neptune confine it. And for reference, to remind yourself where things are, this big black dot here at 30 is Neptune. The black dot here, a little bit inside 20, is Uranus. So there's the classical Kuiper Belt. It's got a fairly small range of eccentricities, circular orbits up to about 0.2 in eccentricity, and they're all confined up to about 30 degrees or so in angle. So they form a flattened, kind of fat belt between 40 and 50 astronomical units. Actually there's some objects here out to about 30 or so, but the main body is between the 2 to 1 out here at about 35, 38 astronomical units, and the 1 to 1 resonance out here at about 58 or so. Now What I show in green here are the so-called resonant objects. The 3-to-2 resonant objects here, I've drawn the black box around, and notice how they stand out as a separate group. They all lie along the 3-to-2 resonance line, and they all kind of clump together. There's a second group just starting to show up here in the 2-to-1 resonance. They're further away, and they're harder to see. Because these are little Plutos, they're called Plutinos. These little guys out here, the 2-to-1 resonance, are called the Tutinos. I didn't make up the name. I'm just reporting it. Finally, the scattered disk, you can see, really do form a pattern of objects beyond the Kuiper belt with very, very eccentric, very elliptical orbits, much more elliptical than the belt, and they form the scattered disk. The largest of the scattered disk objects is Eris, in the same way that the largest of the resonant, three to two resonant objects, is Pluto. So we can see Pluto and Eris as not so much planets as the largest examples of particular dynamical classes of of objects orbiting beyond the orbit of Neptune. So these pictures together tell a lot of the tale. We've got enough of these objects that we can begin to see, if you will, the orbital family relationships among these objects. The fact that they're confined by resonances or scattered in ways, and these lines here tell us that the scattering knows about the orbit of Neptune. So these things have been sculpted by dynamical interactions with Neptune because Neptune, over the course of the solar system evolution, has slowly moved outward In the same way that Jupiter had slowly moved inward, in moving outwards, it populates these outer resonant dynamical families. So it tells us that in the past, there has been significant dynamical evolution of the outer solar system. Now, the resonant objects fall into two classes. fairly quickly here, I'm moving a little bit behind. Plutinos are in a three to two resonance with Neptune. That means they complete two orbits for every three orbits of Neptune. These define the inner edge of the Kuiper belt. Pluto is the largest of the Plutinos. In fact, Plutino is an Italianate word. It means little Pluto, much in the same way the neutrino is a little neutron, sort of. The two-Tinos, some of the people who work in the trans-Neptunian world have strange sense of humor, Um, a two-to-one resonant orbits with Neptune form these so-called two-Tinos, hence the name because it's two-to-one resonance. These define, we think, the outer edge of the Kuiper Belt. There's a sudden drop-off in objects at about the position of the two-to-one resonance. Now, what people don't know, and it's an open question, is this the end of the Kuiper Belt, or is it the beginning of a gap like a gap in the Kirkwood Gaps? So we don't know that answer yet. We don't know the answer, but we haven't found any resonant objects at the next resonance yet. They're going to be faint. They're going to be hard to find, but people are looking. and we only know a thousand objects, so you know, we can still miss a few. So maybe, in fact, most people think these things define the outer edge. The reason why this is important is this is strong evidence. In the past, there's been a slow outward migration of Neptune. In the same way that Jupiter goes in, Neptune goes out. As it moves out, it actually sweeps objects into these resonant orbits. And once the orbit gets in that orbit, it's trapped and then moves out in lockstep. And more and more objects are swept into it. So these patterns of ellipticity, pattern of semi-major axis, pattern of, of t- orbital tilt, all play together. The orbital parameters all know about each other. Now it's a fairly complicated topic in itself, but it tells us an awful lot, and it was really surprising. It really showed us that our, our solar system has changed its configuration slowly over time, revealed by the presence of these fossil re- um, resonances. So, oops, certain where I'm at. Up. Ah. So this fo- this picture, and I'm going to make this kind of the final picture. I've already made my point about these things being leftover objects. This is a picture we've seen before. I've shown this picture in the past where i plotted the mass on the vertical axis versus the semi-major axis here on the x-axis. Here are the major planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. The asteroids we saw yesterday with Ceres, the largest of the asteroids. And now today, the Kuiper belts with the largest of these objects, Pluto and Eris. These are the confining resonances of Jupiter. Notice the gap between the planets is defined by this resonance here, dynamics of Jupiter clearing the space and keeping things small. At the other end of the solar system, we have the confining 3 to 2 and 2 to 1 resonances. I've drawn them a little bit larger just to see it, now defined by Neptune. So I see a fall off in the size of stuff. As I move further out in the solar system, objects get smaller from Jupiter to Neptune. But the two have been going in and moving out, sweeping up the smaller stuff, and clearing the space around it. So this picture says it's worth a thousand words, and I've probably spoken about a thousand words today. Gravity has in large measure sculpted the dynamics of the solar system. And we see that written. The asteroid belt is the inner solar system analog of the Kuiper belt on the outside. Evidence of dynamical evolution of our solar system. So continuing studies are Is there something interesting beyond here? What are some of these objects? What are the smallest objects? How do we study these? Well, every now and then, something from this outer zone gets tickled out, not scattered out, but scattered in and falls towards the sun. And when it does so, it becomes a comet. And we'll talk about those tomorrow.